that are truths that are held in tension. Is that an expression that any of you have ever heard? That some of the truths in God's word are held in tension. That is mean some of them pull this way and some of them pull that way. And it becomes troubling at times when we read certain scriptures that we think are telling us this and then we read another scripture that seems to be telling us something completely different. Here's an example of what I'm talking about, a classic example perhaps of two truths that are held in tension. One is found in Ephesians 2 and 8 where we read, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. But then we go to the book of James and we read that popularly quoted verse, faith without works is dead. Now, if you're not knowledgeable of the word of God, then you might think, well, the Bible is contradicting itself. That's, those two verses are an example of many instances in the word of God where truth is held in tension. It does not mean that one is right and the other is wrong because we know that God does not contradict his, his word. And as believers, we believe what the Word of God says, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know, when you read the epistle of Paul, that doesn't mean that Paul wrote that. Yes, he was the human instrument, because in God's economy, he always needs a man to be his instrument. But the Scripture tells us that Scripture is God-breathed. That's why this book is like no other book. It's not as if the Apostle Paul wrote a commentary. That commentary may have been his opinion, but if it is in this Bible, it is the Word of God and not the Word of the Apostle Paul. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture. Now, as Christians, we have a strong tendency at times to align ourselves more with those scriptures that we like, those scriptures that are more aligned with what we think and what we feel and what we want in our Christian life. But that is not to say that the other scriptures that may be truth in tension, that pull in a different direction, that does not mean that there is anything untruthful with those scriptures. So how, how do we deal with truth that is intention? The first thing that we must do is accept the reality that truth is multidimensional. That is to say that there are many facets to truth. How many of you have experienced in your life that you read a scripture one day and it, tell, it is saying the Spirit of God is saying one truth to you and then another day you read it and you're seeing another truth? Was the first truth wrong? No. 
But the scripture is multidimensional, multifaceted, and God speaks to us in different seasons, in different ways through the word of God. And that's when it's so wonderful because when we need a rhema word, a scripture that we've read a thousand times over, now it becomes a personal, applicable word to our heart, something that we had never, ever seen in the word of God. But on that particular day, because of a particular need in your life, God spoke that truth to you. The problem is that most often we view truth as horizontal. We view truth only through our own lens, only through our own bias, only through our own background, perhaps. But we need to learn how to view truth vertically. God, what are you saying? I, I think I'm reading this, but is that what you are really saying here? In order to understand the message that God is communicating to us, we need to learn to see truth vertically. Isaiah 28 and verse 10 paints the picture of seeing truth vertically. Precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And as we grow in Christ, we also grow in truth. When we're first Christians, we only understand this much. But as we continue to walk with God, we grow in maturity. That's what the scriptures, Peter talks about when he says grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How does that knowledge come? Does it come through visions and dreams? Perhaps, but primarily it comes from the word. And if you have a vision, you have a dream, that's good, but just make sure that it aligns with the word of God because that's the test concerning what is true and what is not true. But we must see truth in its proper order so that we can receive the fullness of what God has for us. And you know what the really good news is, Christian friends? God wants to download into all of us a new operating system. You know, when your computer gets old, it needs a new operating system so that it can function, so that it could process uh, information and knowledge, so that you could retrieve it quickly and accurately. Well, God wants to do that for us. And as we learn how to think vertically through that new operating system that God puts within us, then new revelation, fresh revelation, growing revelation can be downloaded to us and we can grow in the Lord. Now, perhaps in the past you've heard me use this term, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the scripture, and there are several principles that are required that we implement if we are going to interpret the scripture accurately. Today, there are a lot of false religions because scriptures were not interpreted according to the laws of hermeneutics. And so when we interpret the scripture according to the law of hermeneutics, one of the principles, one of the basic foundational principles in God's word is that we interpret scripture with scripture. And that's where we get truth sometime that is intention. But you weigh what this scripture is saying, you weigh what this scripture is saying, and you say, Holy Spirit, reveal to me how the two of these can come together. Otherwise, we can easily select what we call a proof text 
and then build our own doctrine around it. Now here's a classic example of how some have done that over the years, and it's happened through the millennia. There's a scripture where Jesus said, and they shall take up serpents, and they shall do them no harm. Did you know that there are Pentecostal churches that believe in taking up serpents and they have them in their church services because they want to prove that God's word is true. So they take up serpents and guess what? Every once in a while one of them gets bit, bitten and may even die as a result. Well, is God's word true? Yes, it's true. But it's a truth intention. God is not saying deliberately take up serpents. God is saying what happened to the Apostle Paul when they were around that fire and a serpent came out and bit him and everyone knew it was a poisonous viper and anyone who had been bitten by that kind of snake in the past just dropped over dead. But because the word of God is true, Paul was bitten by that viper and it did him no harm. And the scripture says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That is foolishness and it is folly to think because there's that one line in the scripture that now I should take up serpents, tempt the Lord, and show that God's word is true. Can I say it and be as bold to say that that is foolishness, that is folly, and it is a reproach against the word of God. It's simple absurdity. Yet in Christendom, so much damage has been done when, for example, what I cited a few weeks ago about the Calvinistic school of thought and the Arminian school of thought concerning our salvation. The Calvinists believe that God sovereignly elects and predestinates those whom he will to be saved. And when you read that kind of verse, you think, well, that sounds pretty arbitrary. Why would God just pick you, 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 and not me, 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 and, you know? So there's the Arminian school of thought that says, man has been given by God the free gift of a free will. He's a free moral agent. And when he is confronted with the claim of Christ, he has the choice God doesn't want robots. If God wanted robots, then he'd impart salvation to all of us. We had no choice in the matter. It's not by our free will that we worship God. We're just robots saying, praise Jesus, I'm saved. God wants people out of the willingness of their heart to choose him and to serve and worship him all the days of our life. But the reality this morning is that both sides are true. God does choose us, those who are saved. Guess what? Because he's God and he knows those who when they will be confronted with the claim of Christ, they will say yes to Jesus. He didn't arbitrarily select, but because he's God and he's omniscient, he knows the beginning from the end. And he knows all things at all times, through all ages. I mean, I know we can't wrap our minds around that reality, but that's the reality of God. 
But the Calvinist would make this doctrine make you think, well, God chose me and I'm someone special. And because he chose me, I can never, ever lose my salvation. Now, where they got that is, of course, as I said two weeks ago, there are plenty of scriptures on both sides of the aisle that prove if I'm a Calvinist, this is why I believe what I believe, and that's what I believe. And then the Arminians, this is what I believe, and these are the scriptures that prove it, and this is why I'm right. There's where the problem comes in. When the Calvinists say I'm right and you're wrong, and when the Arminians say I'm right and you're wrong, because guess what? Both of them are right, and both of them are wrong when they think that they have the exclusive knowledge and revelation concerning the truth of God's word. Now, two weeks ago, I made the statement, you're probably wondering, Pastor, why are you going through this diatribe this morning? <laughs> well, two weeks ago, when I preached from Hebrews on the danger of drifting and commenting on the a warning of uh, chapter 2 and verse 3, where the apostle who was writing that letter said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. And when I made that statement, I also expressed my personal opinion that I don't believe in the Calvinistic view of salvation, which is eternal security, once saved, always saved. Because that once saved doctrine, always saved doctrine, tells me that if I accept Jesus Christ in my heart, then I could go out and live any old kind of life that I would like to live, and I'm still saved. But my Bible tells me it is only he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Jesus said, if you abide in me, that's the condition, and I will abide in you. But the burden is first on us, if you abide in me. We make the choice, Jesus, I want to abide in you. Jesus, there's a yes in my heart to you. Jesus, I choose to follow you. Jesus, I choose to love you. Jesus, I choose to serve you. I don't serve the world and serve Jesus. Because then I'm putting myself in a very precarious position. For he who will love the world, the Bible says, the love of the Father is not in him. And how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And, I, and my point this morning is not to argue either side of, of, of the spectrum because, as I said, both have a point of view. But the bigger point that I want to make this morning is this. That from the very beginning, Satan has used this as his tool and his tactic when there are differences of opinions in the church of Jesus Christ to then divide believers. And when we are divided, then we are missing the bigger agenda of God. For us to get fixated on what we believe when it is a truth intention. Now, there are some truths in God's word that are non-negotiable. 
Certainly that which concerns Christ, his deity, his work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, how we become saved through believing, confessing, repenting, turning from our sin, accepting Jesus Christ. That is non-negotiable. And both sides of the aisle believe in that. But then this little doctrinal nuance where some believe that God chose me and others believe, well, when I was confronted with salvation, when his spirit was revealed to me, I, I said yes to Jesus. And they've made it such a point of contention. And for, for all the contentions that there have been in the body of Christ, this has been the major one. I remember walking into Bible school and uh, students arguing constantly over once saved, always saved, and the perseverance of the saints. Only he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. It just grieves me for how we can allow the enemy to win over a doctrinal nuance because the reality is we're going to be in God's heaven together. Guess what? Democrats and Republicans are going to be in God's heaven together. So why do we want to divide ourselves over things that the enemy would use to bring strife, discord, division, offense, and all of those things? Why don't we grow up into Christ and say that God commands me not to believe in eternal security, not to believe in the Armenian point of view, but to believe in Jesus because as we've been preaching in Hebrews, Jesus is better. He's better than all the doctrinal nuances because all those doctrinal nuances are about one thing. They're about Jesus. So why are we getting sidetracked onto these peripheral issues that really mean nothing and profit nothing other than bringing conflict and discord? And sadly, people walk out of churches because they disagree with a doctrinal nuance. Having said all of that, I pray that it's the cry of our heart that, Lord, give me ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And especially after Mark's message last Sunday, I've been captured by the challenge that he spoke from Matthew chapter 5. Because I find the day and age in which we're living is that Christians really are not going up the mountain to be with Jesus, to be taught by Jesus. They're taught by what they've heard. That's why we need to be Bereans and search the scriptures for ourselves. Search the scriptures for ourselves. When we're so dogmatic as to say, this is what my Bible says, and you pick a verse that says, no man shall pluck them out of my hand. Well, you could use that as a proof text. That's a great proof text, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said, no man shall pluck them out of my hand. But why does the scripture also say, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling? Why do we need to fear if no man shall pluck us out of God's hand? Because we need to take this business of our salvation so seriously. It is a matter of life and eternal death. 
So God help us, God help us to understand a price that was paid by the precious blood of Jesus Christ is not a price that we are to take lightly or to take for granted or to think that we could take God's grace for granted that I'm saved, forever saved, glory be to God and if I sin, I know that I'm forgiven and I'm on my way to heaven. Well, he that persists in sin, my Bible says, and hardens his neck, he shall be cut off suddenly and that without remedy. That's in the word of God too. See, this is truth intention. Don't just get so myopic as you think and believe one thing because those are the scriptures you were taught in a certain church that you attended. I want to tell you, saints, I, I, I walk into this pulpit with fear and trepidation because I understand someday I will give an account to God, not because I've tickled your ears, but because I've spoken the truth of God's word to you. And I want to bring to you the whole counsel of God, even when truth is intention. So let's be careful about our biases, and walk and live together in harmony and in love. I'm reminded of John. Do you remember him in the Gospels? He had such a big problem when Jesus had sent the disciples out to, to cast out demons and do miracles, and he came back to Jesus, and he said, you know, Jesus, I saw somebody casting out a demon in your name, and I told him to stop. Who do you think you are? You don't belong to our inner group Jesus rebuked him and said, if they are not against us, they are for us. And what I'm trying to suggest, saints of God, is that there is this common denominator. There is this strong foundation in the gospel that is to bind our hearts as one in Jesus Christ. Don't let the nuances of various doctrinal statements become a sticking point that makes us divide and that's the disgrace that has happened over the centuries. Christians always dividing. Now we don't believe in this anymore so we're, we're just going to split. The church that Jesus founded in the New Testament, they were one with one mind, one heart, one accord. Now I understand when error comes in the church we don't leave the church. We call, call error out. You don't belong here. Any amens this morning? Amen. <laughs> if John had the mind of Christ, he would not have rebuked whoever that was that was casting out that demon in Jesus' name. We need to get back to the basics of what it means to really be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, the word of God says knowledge puffs up. And there are some people that are so puffed up because they know their doctrine. And if their doctrine is eternal security, they know all the verses about eternal security. But I was listening to one minister this week who wrote a book on the subject of why once saved, always saved is not a sound biblical doctrine. He said there are 80 verses in the New Testament that disprove the doctrine of eternal security. Again, truth intention. Some of that truth, if it's in the word of God, it's true, yes. But we need to understand it in the light, compare scripture with scripture. 
And I already mentioned this verse in the Bible where the Apostle Paul says, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, if you just look at the one verse, you say, oh, this is all God's business. I have nothing to do with it. God has everything to do with it, and we have everything to do with it because he, can, he binds us together as one with his mind and with his heart. So all of that to say, Christian friends, and I hope I'm not going to disappoint you this morning, but I feel in my spirit that I'm being led to shift course in our sermon series. And I know we didn't get really that far in Hebrews, and one of these days we might get back to it, but I feel we need to reevaluate what true discipleship is, disciples who are taught by Christ not by what our churches tell us, but are taught by Christ. And of course, Christ uses the church, but you as Bereans, you need to go home, open your Bibles and say, what Pastor Paul said to me this morning, is that according to the word? Because if it's not, you need to come back and tell me, I need to be accountable for the word of truth. And so God helping us this morning with the time that we have remaining, I wanna provide just a brief introduction to this new sermon series that I'm going to call A Kingdom Upside Down. Do you know that we belong to an upside down kingdom because everything that Jesus teaches is upside down as far as the world is concerned. But we know that it's upside right. The world is upside down. And they think that, wow, we are just, we're enlightened. Are you an enlightened person? Are you woke? Did you wake up? If it's not the word of God that is waking you up, then you're in deception. And if you're walking around talking about how woke you are, and that wokeness is not by the word of truth, you're not woke, you're deceived. The world is wanting to tell us that we should educate kindergartners and up to third graders, and then God knows what you're allowed to say after that. But we need to teach them about sexual orientation. Because just in case a six-year-old doesn't know whether or not he wants to be a boy or a girl, we can tell them that's okay to re-decide. And you say that's woke. That's a lie from the pit of Satan's hell. And the Christian church is afraid to talk against it because if you talk against it, boy, you're going to offend people. God created male and female, period. That is the word of the Lord. And if we are true disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to learn how to live our lives counter to the culture. And as we're going to learn in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to tell us that we're blessed when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. When we stand up for what is true, be proud, hold your head high, and say, thank you, Jesus, that I could stand with you. I don't know about you. I'd rather stand with Jesus any day than with a world that is in darkness and in sin and on their way to hell. 
So having said that, let's, let's get to our text because I know I've already preached half a sermon here. And don't, don't get nervous. I'm not going to preach another 45 minutes as I typically do. <laughs> so Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. You could follow. How about if you, can you read that? Is that large enough? If it's large enough for you to read, then read with me. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain... And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. Holy Spirit, we're asking you to teach us the words of Jesus today. Open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts. Let your word run swiftly and be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as I reflect on our Christianity today and how we as Christians down through the years have thought and acted, it seems to have so much of a focus on the label that we wear. I'm a Christian. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but I'm just wondering as we look into the Word of God, if what is preeminent in the mind of God has now become secondary to us, and that is the kingdom of God. Not Christianity, not the Christian church, but the kingdom of God. Did you know that in the King James Version of the Bible, the label Christian is only used three times? I was pretty shocked when I Read that. When, when in 1611 they translated the scriptures from the original languages, there were only three occasions when the label Christian was translated. It's in Acts 11.26, disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Acts 26.28, Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. 1 Peter 4.16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. And so while being a Christian and wearing that label has been uppermost in, in the minds of most believers, it saddens me to think that growing up as a Christian, and I'm, I'm talking about myself, talking about my wife, the churches that we grew up, it was all about being a Christian, but I think I could count on one hand, if even on one hand, sermons that I heard regarding the kingdom of God. The Christian church has been seriously deficient in the revelation of the kingdom of God. We've been so Christian-focused and church-focused that we've become so myopic. We just think within the four walls of our church. We think about our doctrine. We think about our practices. We think of the things that we do as a Christian. We come to church. We read our Bibles. We pray. We give tithes. We try to show love to others. But there's a far bigger, much larger agenda in the mind and in the heart of God. Jesus did not come, let me be careful how I say it, to establish a Christian denomination. He came to establish a kingdom. 
He didn't come so that his church could become center stage. He came so that his kingdom could become center stage. And certainly, through his church, the revelation of that kingdom is being made known. The born-again experience is not so much about becoming a Christian. Now listen to everything that I'm saying here before you call me a heretic. As much as it is about being in the kingdom of God. Because when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, what did he say? Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He didn't say you can't be a Christian. Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And we as Christians have made it all about Christianity. Our practices, what we do, where we go. That's important, yes. But we don't live with this bigger mindset and vision of the kingdom of God. Becoming a Christian isn't about wearing a label, but it's about a whole new existence that God has ordained for us that we now live in a new realm. So as opposed to those three times in the, new, in the King James Version when the word Christian is used in the entire New Testament, in the word kingdom, guess how many times it appears in the New Testament? 137 times. Does that give you some idea where God's mind and heart is? If this is the word of God, is his focus on being Christians being Christians? Or on Christians walking and living in the kingdom of God. The reality is, as we study the word of God, we need to understand as our worldview of the Bible, that it's about primarily one thing. And that one thing is God's kingdom. It is the most important theme of the scriptures. And that is not to mitigate Jesus, of course, because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. That is not to diminish God the Father who in his heart and mind from all eternity established that he would have a kingdom. And if you're a student of the scripture and you study uh, Bible scholars, they are all in agreement. This is not a truth intention. Everyone is in agreement that the word of God is about the kingdom of God. Let me read two quotes to you. The central unifying concept of the scriptures is the kingdom of God. From this central truth, the whole of the scriptures take their shape directed toward kingdom's final manifestation. This was the plan of God from the very beginning. Jesus came to launch that kingdom, but it was prophesied years and years ago in the Old Testament. Remember the verse in Isaiah 9 and 7? Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from when? Henceforth, even forevermore. God is about establishing a kingdom rule that will go on through all eternity. And in Daniel 7 and verse 14, we read, Then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Most of us will say he came to die on the cross. But do you know why he came to die on the cross? He came to die on the cross so that he could establish his kingdom because without the cross, there could be no kingdom. But his primary reason for coming was to establish the kingdom. And through dying on the cross, he could have kingdom kids show forth his glory as they live their life. When Jesus finally launched his ministry after living on this earth for 30 years, 30 years, he lived in obscurity. But then he launched his ministry. What were the first words that came out of his mouth? Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look, listen, wake up. It's me, the son of the living God. It's here. The kingdom is about to burst on the scene. And then we read throughout the Gospels, Matthew 4 and 23, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in all of their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Luke 4 and 43, Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Because for this purpose, so you can't call me a heretic if Jesus said himself, for this purpose he came, to usher in a new kingdom. Because when Adam and Eve fell into sin, the kingdom that God intended for man to rule and reign in and have dominion over was lost. And the only way to regain that kingdom was to provide atonement for sin that separated man from God's purpose. And so he sent Jesus to die on the cross so that that kingdom can be restored in the purposes of God and for the people of God. And when we come to Matthew, when he speaks about before he returns, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. I don't know about you, but as I was preparing for this message, I, I'm thinking, Lord, I, I, I place so much focus on what it means to be a Christian. But I think those of you who've been in this church for a, a few years know that I always talk about what it means to be a kingdom Christian because there are a lot of church people that wear the label, but they're not walking in the kingdom. They're not living in the kingdom because the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And we're going to get into that more uh, much later in this series. So it's for this purpose that Jesus came, and we need to lay that as a foundation stone in our lives. Now, the scripture is clear. This is not optional. It's not something that, oh, well, I, I'd rather focus on being a Christian than living as a Christian in the kingdom of God. We've got the wrong perspective there. Because the scripture tells us in Colossians 1 and 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness 
And what did he do when he rescued us? He translated, I think that's the King James, I'm reading from the NASB, he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. What a work of grace that is. We were in darkness. We were in chains. And God says, I'm taking the chains off. I'm lifting you out of this prison house and I'm bringing you into a glorious kingdom of light and truth and glory and grace and peace and love. That's the kingdom that we belong in. Are you walking in it today? Do you realize what Jesus has translated you into and because we belong to that kingdom, every kingdom, every nation, every people, they have their own unique culture. They have their own unique character. Well, we're a royal nation, a kingdom of priests, and we need to have our own character that's outlined for us here in the Word of God. So that when people see us, when people interact with us, they understand, who are they? They belong to another world. Yes, I do belong to another world. I belong to the kingdom of God. I've been saved by His grace. I've been translated from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Jesus is my Savior, the captain and the leader of my salvation. I just wonder, does our behavior, does our culture, does our character betray us as citizens of the kingdom of God? What did Jesus say? You are in this world, but you are not of this world. So everything about us is to be different from the world. I'm not saying weird, but everything that is of darkness, we need to be a bright light so people see, something different about her. Everybody else is laughing at this dirty joke. They're not laughing. They're down praying somewhere for us. That means that as Christians who are living in a dark world, we don't act like the world. We don't think like the world. We don't respond like the world. And we love like God. We love what he loves and we hate what he hates. Because the world is ruled by his arch ancient enemy who is the antithesis of all that is good and is godly. And so to lay a foundation for his kingdom, Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount. This is called the Magna Carta of discipleship and of Christianity. And everything that Jesus says in these three chapters, if there are three chapters in God's word, that we need to have a foundation in. It's Matthew 5 through 7. It doesn't consist of pious platitudes. And I know that when people give great speeches, they love quoting like the Beatitudes. Well, that sound pretty. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those that mourn. They're not pious platitudes. These are the things that Jesus says are intrinsic to the culture and the character of those who are my disciples. And it's the antithesis of how the world acts, how the world thinks, and how the world feels. So these laws of the kingdom are to govern every facet of our life if we truly belong to the kingdom. 
Listen to the challenge that Paul gave to the Christians at Thessalonica. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children, that you would walk worthy of God who has called you to his kingdom. Now that you've been brought into this kingdom, you need to understand Your walk needs to be different. Your talk needs to be different. Your attitude needs to be different. Your words need to be different. Your speak needs to be different. Your your mentality needs to be different. Only then can you walk worthy of the Lord. This must ever be our first priority and passion. So as we come to Matthew 5, and I'm going to wrap this up in a few moments, where we're challenged to see how true disciples are to live their lives, must follow Jesus up the mountain to be with him. Do we really want to be taught by Jesus? You can't be taught by Jesus just by sitting in church on Sunday morning. During the week, are you walking up the mountain to be with Jesus? And it's an incline. You know, it's fun to, to go down on a sled. But this Christian walk isn't going down on a sled. Some people think they're going to float to heaven on a bed of ease. Through many afflictions, we enter into the kingdom of God. And the, 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 these churches that preach this social gospel, oh, if you come to Jesus, your life is going to be hunky-dory and full of roses and peachy keen and everything's going to be great. It's going to be great. You know why? Because now you're going to have Jesus to walk with you through the trials of life. Because in this life, there is trial, there is tribulation, there is affliction. And any of us who've lived more than a few years know that that's the reality and that's the truth. And the other good news is that when we're walking with the king and he is living on the inside of us, we live above these trials and we have the confidence and the assurance and the persuasion that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So no matter how bad it gets, God's love is my portion. And I could cast my cares upon him because he cares for me. But this upward climb goes against everything that is in us, or I should say in our carnal nature. That's why our carnal nature needs to die. Because if it feels especially painful climbing up that mountain, that means that your carnal nature is very much alive. (laughs) But the more you love Jesus, the more you serve Jesus, the more you, 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 you know, it's like building muscles. You know, certain weights you wouldn't think of tackling immediately. But as you build muscles, if you go back to some of those lower weights, oh, this is a piece of cake. And you just lift that 10 pounds like it's nothing. So as we grow in God, this discipline does get easier. But it goes against what the carnal nature thinks and feels and wants. It's saying no to ourselves. It's saying no to our flesh. It's saying no to what we feel. We have a justifiable right to feel. No, you don't. Jesus was led as a lamb before her slaughter as dumb. He opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. 
When he was insulted, he did not return insult for insult. He opened not his mouth. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, that verse of Scripture really convicts me because I know my carnal nature. When I get accused, I'm ready to arch my back and say, what are you talking about? Let me tell you about you. But if we're going to go up to the mountain to be taught by Jesus, he is going to show us the way of the cross, which is the way of death to ourselves, death to our feelings, death to our petty hurts, and say, Jesus, I want you to live your life through me. So the demand is to rise up above the lowlands of pettiness and uh, above those things that we argue over and the offenses that we carry, and we rise above it all to set our gaze upon Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth can grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, setting our gaze on Jesus. I want to close with a verse of scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 23 where Moses is speaking to the children of Israel and telling them, do you really understand why God delivered you from that land of bondage, that land of Egypt? Why did he do that? He brought you out so that he might bring you in to the land that he promised you. Why did God deliver us from the kingdom of darkness so that he could bring us into the kingdom of his dear son. But the question is, are we really living in that kingdom? Are we walking in that kingdom? And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount in these next weeks, we're going to be challenged to evaluate our lives to see whether our life is measuring up to the standard, the laws that govern those that belong to the kingdom of God. And I pray that we're going to be willing to embrace the challenges so that we can be taught by Jesus and become more like Jesus. Is that your heart's prayer this morning? To be more like Jesus? I want us to close our service this morning with a wonderful chorus. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. I'm not going to get my life tangled up in a wad because I believe in this doctrinal nuance and so-and-so doesn't believe in it, so maybe I should leave the church. Kingdom living, setting our gaze on Jesus. Lord, here's my heart. Speak what is true. Can we stand as we sing it together? If you'd like to come to the altar and spend some moments in prayer, you're welcome to do that as we sing this song and we prepare to close the service.